this morning. Um, I want to make one correction from last week. Um, as you probably noticed, just the way that, um, that I was trained um, to preach is that I don't preach with a full manuscript. Um, it gives me certain freedom in preaching to you and talking to you and looking at your faces. And if you have a furrowed brow, um, circling back around because I've said something confusing. Um, but it also tends to, to leave me open to misspeaking. And so one of my big hearts for you is to help you navigate the world that we're in. And especially to point out different groups that call themselves Christian but are very much um, not and are very much fall into heresy. So last week I was trying to chart out how Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, um, Christian science, Scientology, how those are all groups that call themselves Christian uh, but are in a very real way are not. Um, believe in heresy, do not believe in the full deity of Jesus. Each of them have their own flavor of heresy that really is just a, a, a recurrence of an old heresy. But in saying that they, they claim to be Christian, last week I said that they were Christian, and that is absolutely not correct. And so I um, want you to know that um, so that you're aware of those groups. Um, many of those groups have made um, changes in the way they advertise themselves. So, for example, Mormonism um, made a subtle change, especially around the Utah Olympics, um, where they, they were antagonistic towards what they would consider traditional Christianity and then started selling themselves to be a part of um, traditional Christianity and just kind of another denomination, which is very much not true. And so um, once it, as, I, as we work through Christology and we look, work through the Word of God, I want to help you understand the world that we're in um, and soul-destroying heresy that is still alive and well. Um, and, and as we've seen over the course of the Christian church, Usually heretics are not nasty, mean people who dwell in the dark. Usually heretics are very nice and charming people. And so often the things that are very nice and are very close or call themselves close to the, the real thing are some of the most dangerous. So I want to provide that correction from, um, from last week and where when I was preaching in that sermon. This week we're going into 1 Corinthians 2. We're picking up with the Apostle Paul talking to the church at Corinth. If you're unfamiliar um, with the Corinthian epistles, um, they're not the ones that people naturally gravitate to because they're some of the most graphic portrayals of heinous sin in local congregation and in people's lives. Um, and the Apostle Paul is pointing that out in churches that he spent a significant amount of time in. He helped plant Corinth. He spent 18 months in Corinth. And so you can see a, a church's ability to grow and thrive is not dependent even on having what we might consider a really capable pop popular pastor. I mean, if it was dependent on the pastor's capability or skill, you would expect the church that had the Apostle Paul in it to be the most mature. But when we're actually finding out that what makes a church healthy is their ability to focus on the crucified Savior Jesus and all of Scripture to see and savor Christ, not to have some highfalutin pastor be a part of their congregation for a specific period of time. And so Paul is going to get into some passages that honestly should make you uncomfortable in some of the modern sensibilities about what we're supposed to talk about and not talk about. So we're going to talk about sexuality and how the gospel confronts sexual sin. We're going to talk about divorce and remarriage. We're going to talk about money and how our possessions and how we deal with our possessions can be sinful or not. We're going to talk about how we deal with conflict with one another because those were all real things that were very much out of whack in the church at Corinth. And so the Apostle Paul is about to dive into those very specific things. But at this point, he's laying the groundwork 
for what you need to know and believe before you can approach, handle, see growth, repent from those very difficult, challenging sins um, that thematically show up in everybody's life. And so conflict, sexuality, possessions, um, deal with authority, um, even though you may not currently be in heinous sin in any of those categories, those summarize areas of temptation and sin in your life. And so what Paul's been doing in these first few chapters is saying, this is what you need to know and believe. What happened in Corinth is that they had lost their foundation in Christ. They had lost their focus on him in the scriptures, and that allowed these sins and temptations to take root in their congregation. So Paul is not just addressing those sins. He's going to the foundation. He's going to the cracks and the places they had become unmoored before he addresses them. And so as you think about your own life and the own, your sins that you face, temptations you face, um, themes of sin in your life that maybe you've been dealing with, with a long, for a long time, you are hearing in these chapters Paul saying these are the foundational theological principles that you need to believe in order to assault these areas of sin in your life. And so this morning we're coming especially to the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit um, works in our lives. I had a seminary professor who said that the Holy Spirit was the, the shy member of the Trinity. Um, the Holy Spirit loves to proclaim Jesus and loves to help us focus on the Lord Christ. The Holy Spirit is very much important, the third person of the Trinity, and important for us to know um, how the Holy Spirit works in our lives as Christians, how the Holy Spirit doesn't work in the lives of non-Christians, and how the Holy Spirit works through God's Word. And so that's what we're looking at this morning um, as we continue our slow teaching through the book of 1 Corinthians. So um, with that introduction, why don't I read to us um, the Word of our God. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 down through 16. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept thing, the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is, is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ." We pray for us. Father, thank you for your word, which is true um, and applicable, not only to the church at Corinth, but to Christ's covenant today and to every generation of Christian that has, is, and will ever live. And in that way, it points to Christ. And so, Father, would you come and teach us from your word this morning? We pray in Christ. Amen. As we come to this um, particular passage, again, I, I encourage you that I really want you to understand the Word of God. I want you to be a student of the Word of God as the Word of God points you to Christ. Yes, I have some subsidiary goals in preaching. Um, I want you to stay awake. I want this to be applicable for your life. Um, I, I, I want those things to happen. Um, but fundamentally, I want you to be able to go home this afternoon, open up 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, and be able to say, not, nah, wow, Joe is a great preacher, but I understand that passage better. And that's how I hope to serve you 
um, as your pastor in the work that I try and do um, during the week. And that goal happens to be described here in this passage. Paul is beginning his argument in verse 10 with the simple argument that like understands like. You might say to somebody or Let's say you're in an, an argument. Let's say you're even in an argument with your spouse. We'll make it, we'll make it personal. Um, in the course of the argument with your spouse, um, they say something and say, well, what you're really saying is, well, you might say in response, well, you don't know what I'm really thinking. You know, maybe there are times that it is unnerving when someone says that they know what you're thinking, when in reality, they, they may know you well enough to probably know pretty good guess at what you're thinking, especially if you've been married long enough. But in the end, what is going on in your mind is known only to you. So Paul is making an argument right now. If that's true, how can we know the mind of God? If we're going to understand who God is and how he's revealed himself and his saving purposes, how can we know what God thinks. Now, not only is there the difficulty of finite to infinite, so a lot of us think that, you know, the way that God's, you know, in heaven right now speaking, you know, he's using, you know, 2017 American English. Now, that's kind of silly. The way that Calvin talks about God revealing himself is he said that God reveals himself to us like a mother lisps to her child. And what he means is when a mother is over top of her infant and talking to her infant, she doesn't say, hello, beautiful infant. You are the lovely picture of an infant child. And I love you and cannot wait for all of the years that we can spend together in bliss and beautiful raising of who you are. A mother looking at her infant says, oh, goo 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 goo. <laughs> What Calvin is saying, in, in the goo 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 goo, a mother is communicating love to her infant in a way that the infant can understand, recognizing that that infant can't understand all of that other vocabulary that I said. But there is still a real relationship and a real communication across a very real divide of a baby that's a few days or a few weeks old to a mother that's many years old. And so Calvin in that is getting to the principle that God is infinite and we are finite. That God's knowledge, that God's communication is so far above us and what we can grasp that when God does communicate to us, he lisps and coos and goo-goos to us even though it may look like a thousand-page document with complex and deep theology, because our God is infinite and we are finite. But that's not the only problem. Our God is sinless and perfect where we are affected by sin. And not only our hearts, not only our actions, but our minds are affected by sin, which we talked about last week. We are not calibrated correctly. No part of us, when we are in our sin, can judge the communication of God, really. And so the Apostle Paul is now making an argument of how we come to know the very mind of God. And he said it starts by realizing the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is the only one who can understand the mind of God. 
that the Holy Spirit is the source of understanding what God thinks and what God wishes to reveal to us. You see that in verses 10 and 11. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except for the Spirit of God. So, if we are going to know God and who He is, there has to be some connect with the Spirit of God to understand God and His revealing purposes. Now, this is also what teaches us from Scripture, not only in this passage, but in other passages, the full deity of the Holy Spirit. If a person's thoughts are his own, and only a person can know the depths of his own thoughts. And God has his own thoughts. And only the Holy Spirit can know the thoughts of God. Then the Holy Spirit must be fully divine. Or the Spirit cannot understand the depths of God. And so Trinitarian theology is very, very, very important. And very practical as you see us working our way through this particular te- text. And so we start with realizing the Holy Spirit is the source of knowing who God is and what God intends to communicate to us as Christians because the Holy Spirit is God Almighty and understands the deep things of God. Now, as we follow our way through and then we work into verse 12, we continue to read on with the Apostle Paul who says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And so he's taking it a step further. If God's revelation of Jesus Christ, how you can be saved, who God truly is, and all of God's beauty is in the possession of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, how do we as Christians become partakers of that knowledge and understanding of God? If this morning you're a Christian, If you can say right now, I love Jesus, I'm looking to Jesus alone for my salvation, I'm repenting of my sins, I read this Bible, and I love God more. The Apostle Paul is saying, God has already done a great work in you, and what he has done is placed his Holy Spirit within you as a gracious gift, causing you to be born again and be made new. It is a part of God's mercy and grace. For all of human history, as people have approached the spirit world, they've asked the question, how can I control it? Should I make totem poles? Should we give sacrifices? Should we have magic spells or magic amulets? How can I do enough to control the spiritual world in order to make it suit me and bring prosperity to me? What God has done is not allowed you to control the spirit world, but has taken his Holy Spirit and placed you under control of that Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit has done what you cannot do, which is to cause regeneration, to cause you to think God's thoughts after him, to feel God's thoughts after him, to work for God in the world. The Holy Spirit in conversion comes and causes us to be born again. And did you see in that verse the so that? So that 
we might accept and understand the things freely given to us. And so Christian salvation is not that we, before we were Christians, read this book, came to an accurate recognition of the gospel of God, the invitation that God has given us in Jesus, then decided that we would like to become Christians, and then God responded to our really high spiritual IQ and our courageous decision by giving us the Holy Spirit and causing us to be born again. What this is saying is that when you, in your life, very really came to a moment to say, I love the Lord God, I want to repent of my sins, I want to follow him, God had already done a great work in your heart. That for you to see God and say, God is beautiful. I am sinful and I need his mercy and I am pleading the mercy and grace of Jesus and I want to live for him all my days. That that is the mark that God has already worked in you by the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit has come to that person, caused the renovating work of redemption and regeneration and new birth, and after that, given you the ability to understand and accept the Bible as it is. This is one of the things that was recovered during the Protestant Reformation. It's one of the things that guards us from boasting in our own IQ, our own courage, our own ability for our salvation. Now, as you're working through that, there is what we experience and there's what the Bible describes. You might say, well, what I experienced was I was in sin. I was going about my days. Someone shared the gospel with me. I heard a sermon. I read a book. I read the Bible. I realized I was sin. I was in sin and that I needed Jesus alone for salvation. I went through a time of soul searching. I placed my faith in the Lord God. After I placed my faith and made a decision for Jesus... God came into my life and began, work, began working in response to my decision. And that sounds all very American and all very um, self-help, spiritual-esque kind of ways of doing things. That me, through my search, have obtained a great wealth of spiritual wisdom and very courageously and bravely set out on a new path, new path of spiritual improvement. That God looked at my IQ and my spiritual strength and responded to my smartness and to my bravery and to my courage and to my sincere, authentic spiritual search. And he rewarded all of that with salvation and understanding of his ways and the kind of power that comes from trusting the Holy Spirit. Now, that may be how your experience looked to you. But the way you understand your experience is not inerrant or authoritative. When we read this book, this book, we come to this book as people born again, and we start to understand that, oh, that's what I experienced. But this book said something else was going on inside of me when all that was going. If I describe how I came to faith without this book, I'm going to make drastic errors. In fact, I may describe how I came to faith in an unbiblical way, thinking that somehow God rewards spiritual effort with salvation, when we read in this passage very clearly that what happens is that God, by his mercy, saves people, not because they've been on sincere spiritual search, not because they've read the right websites or gone to the right guru or read the whole Bible or anything else, that God simply arrests 
interrupts the ongoing dark, sinful lives of sinners and decides to have mercy on them and causes them to be born again, to be indwelt by the Spirit of God that gives them the ability to then understand God and His beauty, Christ and His salvation, to respond with repentance for sin and faith in the Lord Jesus, and to be indwelt by the same regenerating Holy Spirit that powers you also for Christian life. So that one author says, as we come to faith and we see the door of salvation from the outside, it says this, come, all who are weary, place your faith and be saved. As we pass through that door, and now we're in the house of salvation, and we look back, we see elect before the foundation of the world. And so it's important for us to take this book and allow it to speak into our experience of salvation and our growth in Christian faith. And the Apostle Paul here, you can see where his argument's going. He's saying that there is the spirit of the world, or there is the spirit that's been given to you by God, that's caused you to be born again and to look on the cross of Christ and say, that is the wisdom and plan of God for my salvation. And the Christian then has a choice to live their life by one of those two principles. And that Paul hopes the Christian will continue to grow in saying, the crucified Christ makes sense of all of my life. Not, yeah, the crucified Christ, I believed in him a long time ago, and now I'm living my life however I see fit according to the wisdom of the world. A very real choice. And so the Apostle Paul said, Don't you know how you were saved? Don't you know what it took to bring you to new life? The Holy Spirit took up residence in your heart, caused you to understand the gospel and to receive the free gift of the gospel that God gave you. It is by God's mercy. So the cross is not a mark of our ability, the cross is the mark of our inability and God's mercy and God's power. And that sets us forth to living a life of Christian maturity, not Christian self-empowerment. The cross is not just, as I say often, they get out of hell free card. It isn't the description of how you came to faith and now you're on your own. It's a description of God's mercy saying it is always his power. It is always his work. It is always his grace in your life. The cross is something that you're seeking to employ and apply to every area of life, not just how do I avoid hell. That's God's work of his Holy Spirit and what he does to save us. And it describes all of you, even though all of you have very, very, very different testimonies. This describes the ubiquitous work of the Holy Spirit in all of you this morning who are truly saved. God's Holy Spirit took up residence in you caused you to be born again and allowed you to understand and accept the gospel of God about Jesus Christ centered on the cross of Christ. But he goes on even to say what we're doing right now and what I'm doing right now in teaching the word of God from the Bible. This is what he goes on to say in verse 13. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So what he's saying is there is what is going on externally, and there is what's going on through the Holy Spirit right now. So if right now you are not a Christian, and you walk out of those doors after the service, you will be able to accurately say what I said during the sermon. 
You might even have better ability to pay attention. You might have a better memory than some of the Christians are here. And so you might be able to accurately write down. Maybe you had a perfect memory and you were just a human transcription machine. And you could walk out of here and word for word write down what I am saying about the word of God. If you are not a Christian, you will in no way understand the wisdom of God and the cross of Christ. You will be able to accurately say everything that I said, but you will claim that it is foolishness and should be rejected and not applied to all of life. But for those of you who are Christians, the Apostle Paul says here that when the Bible is taught and read, the Holy Spirit, he uses the word impart, imparts spiritual wisdom to those who are spiritual. And so the Holy Spirit, in a very real way, takes all sides of the communication. So if we start with the mind of God and who God is, and how are we going to know the mind of God? The Holy Spirit knows the mind of God. Well, the Holy Spirit then communicates and imparts the mind of God through the word externally preached. And then when we get over to the Christian, the Holy Spirit receives the mind of God. So you can imagine, let's say, a, a great football player. Let's say we, we pick Peyton Manning, or insert whoever your, your favorite football player is, a great quarterback. Let's say that that quarterback, you ask, what I want you to do is I want to receive an NFL pass. Peyton, I want you to throw me an NFL pass, and my goal is to catch an NFL level pass. And so Peyton says, sure. Square off at 10, 15 yards, and he wings one at you but you find yourself not to be an NFL receiver. And so it bounces off your hands. And you say, well, try again. And so he wings another one at you, and it bounces off your hands. Try again, and it bounces another one off your hands. And you try to like stick it in your helmet so it just finally stays there and you receive it. You see, it, it is too strong, and you are too unable to receive that NFL pass. But what if he could throw it and then run faster than the pass, and then come over and also catch it for you on your behalf and hand you the ball. Well, now in a very real sense, you've received an NFL-level pass, but you didn't do any of the work because it was too strong for you, too fast for you. But in his mercy, he both um, had, sent, and received that level of pass. So the Holy Spirit has the gospel of God, communicates the gospel of God, and in you receives the gospel of God and sets the gospel of God at work in you. And that's what happens when the gospel is preached. And I keep using that word very generally. What I mean by the gospel of God is the whole Bible in that it only makes sense through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus and is only centered on him. That is the NFL level pass. That is what cannot be received without the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, people will hear the words of the crucified Christ and reject it every single time. But God, in his mercy, grows us through the proclamation of the gospel as it is held up and imparted by the Holy Spirit and received in us by that same Holy Spirit that then applies it to us and holds it up. It was, 
You know, it was Marx who said that Christianity was a crutch. Well, I disagree with Marx. I think Christianity is life support. I don't think it's a crutch for the masses. It's not something that holds me up. It's something that keeps me alive. I am much more inept from needing a crutch. I need life support. I need life itself. And the Holy Spirit is that functional person of the Trinity that provides the very real revelation of God in Jesus Christ. So right now, that is really happening, even though we're in, we're in a gym, here's a music chair. And it's just, I mean, this is a very lackluster place and environment. But right now, in the proclamation of the Word of God, the Holy Spirit is applying the truth of the revelation of Jesus in the hearts of God's people in a way that only the Holy Spirit can. Praise be to God. So that our growth is not even on our own ability to focus, even though you should. Our growth is not in our study skills in the Bible, even though you should study the Bible. Our growth is not our ability to, in a library kind of way, catalog all of the Bible facts. Our growth is when God takes his mind, the revelation of Jesus, and communicates it through the proclamation of the word to us, receives it through the Holy Spirit in us, and then applies it in our lives. And so Paul then goes on and draws the comparison. So he said, so the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. What he's saying is that if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're going to get everything wrong. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're going to look at every facet of life. You're going to look at God. You're going to look at salvation. And because you refuse to see all of those things through the crucified Christ, you're going to get all of life wrong. So John Calvin in his Institutes talked about um, two kinds of spectacles. He said that Christians have, um, have two kinds of glasses. Um, and what he said is that we have the Holy Spirit to help us to understand the Word of God. And without the Holy Spirit, we're going to get this wrong every time. That's all print, so I'll get that wrong every time. Without the Holy Spirit. But the second pair of glasses is that through the Word of God, we see the world, and so we get the world right. And so the Holy Spirit helps us to understand God and God's mind and the crucified Christ that then helps us to understand the world, which is why Paul says, so the Christian doesn't need to be judged by anyone, but is able to give judgment anything. Not that Christians are always right, but because Christians have the Holy Spirit and the Bible about Christ in every way, they are able to rightly determine how to see and live in every area of life. And so when Paul gets to human sexuality, he says, use your two spectacles. You have the Holy Spirit about Christ and the Bible, and through those things, you can see God's intention for your sexuality. When you come to a local church and how people should interact and how you handle conflict, he said you have the Holy Spirit and the Bible. Use that to understand. But if we revoke either of those things, we are unable to rightly judge. Or if we try through this word to make sense of it without the crucified Christ, we also can't make sense of it. Which is, you can see what happens when churches plunge into theological liberalism and leave behind Jesus, why their churches die. 
Like, that happens every time because they've missed the center of it, the crucified Christ, which Paul describes as the functional activating agent in Scripture. So he's describing this and, and how it goes um, all the way through. And so those are two different groups of people. Now, it's not, as maybe you've heard before, some people have described here and taken this text to describe, I don't know if you heard the word carnal Christian. Um, some commentators have come to this text and wrongly said that, well, what there are is there are Christians who are really converted, um, but don't yet have the power of the Holy Spirit at work in their lives. And so they're really converted, but they're not really walking in the power of the Holy Spirit and need the Holy Spirit to come um, to that. That's not what he means by, by natural. Again, Paul is making an argument for what's going on in Corinth. Very real Christians who are truly converted, but they are acting like the natural man. They are acting like someone in the world. It is possible for a Christian to stay very immature, to be truly converted and trust in Jesus for their salvation, but not to take the truth of the crucified Christ and apply it to every area of their life. And Paul describes that as Christian immaturity. But instead of applying the truth of Christ to every area of life, they take the world's idea of wisdom and apply the world's idea of wisdom to every area of life. And what Paul is saying as he's talking to Corinth is, that's what you did. Truly converted, but very immature. You are not applying the truth of the crucified Christ to all these areas of your life. And what you're doing instead is you're trying to use the world's wisdom and any wonder that things are a wreck in your personal lives and in your church. And so Paul, in a very real way, is going to call them out on it. He's going to say, stop it. Stop sinning. Don't do that anymore. But in order to do that, if they say, how... What should I do? Well, now in these first passages, he's laying the groundwork to answer that question. You return to the Bible about the crucified Christ. He's at the center of everything that you do. And so you order all of your life that way. And he goes on to even close, for who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And, And so he says the Christian is in possession of the mind of Christ. And and understand again here as we're talking about the Trinity, he quotes Isaiah 40. Do you see that? Um, Quoted there in that passage. Talking about the mind of the Lord. And in in your Bibles, if you read Lord, it'll be capital L, um, small capital O-R-D. If you're unfamiliar with what the English Bible does with that, that means that, that the word behind that is Yahweh, is behind L, capital O-R-D. Um, if it's capital L, lowercase O-R-D, um, the word behind that is Adonai, which is another name um, for God, not his covenant name. His covenant name is Yahweh. Um, is an interesting side bit. How we get the word Jehovah is taking the vowels of Yahweh, I mean, taking the consonants of, of Yahweh and the vowels of Adonai. And so it's Yahovai. And that's how we get the word Jehovah and the progress of English. But it messes everything up. And so you don't know what to do when you see capitals there. What it's saying is Yahweh... The covenant name of God, the mind of God. And then he goes and says, but we have the mind of Christ. So what is Paul doing in that passage? He's saying that the mind of Christ is synonymous with the mind of Yahweh, which means Christ is synonymous with Yahweh, is talking about the full deity of Jesus. 
And so in this little passage, we see the full deity of the Holy Spirit, and we see the full deity of Jesus as Paul talks about the way that we understand the gospel for everyday living. And so, again, as we're shaping this for ourselves, maturity in Christian life, maturity and growth for us as Christians means growing in our ability to see and savor Jesus as he's described as our crucified and resurrected Lord. Maturity in Christian life is not the propagation of external external morals and the memorization of Bible facts. That's a way to fake it. According to Apostle Paul, maturity is the ability to see Christ crucified and to apply that to all of your life. Now, what might you be feeling right now? Well, you could be feeling two kinds of fear. The first is maybe you're feeling the fear that you've never been truly converted. That might be true. It might be you thought because you were a good Christian person in a good Christian town from a good Christian family that you are a Christian. Or you might think that in space and time you realized that your life was going towards an early grave and you decided to turn over a new leaf and live in a spiritual way, part of which that meant living as a Christian. Or maybe you had children and realized that your children needed church. None of those are saving experiences. None of those motivations testify to true salvation. True salvation is when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your heart, causes you to be born again, to love Jesus Christ as he is displayed in the scriptures as a crucified and resurrected Savior for sinners whose only hope is in him. So the invitation to you this morning, if you fear, have you been truly converted, to remind yourself what true Christian conversion is. Maybe you realize that where you are right now is you're a very immature Christian. That you haven't taken the truth of the crucified Savior and applied it to every area of your life. And in fact, all of us will need to do that for the rest of our lives. But if you look at one of the areas most painful, probably the one you speak about least in your life, an area of sin that seems to have victory and you just keep fighting it and you can't find the kind of relief that you want from that sin, I promise you what you're going to find in whatever is around that is a lack of the application of the crucified Savior as he's taught in Scripture. And so the solution to both of those fears is to repent of sin, find faith in Jesus, and to revel in the union that we have with him. So you see already the Father's intention is to give you the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit would grow in you a love for Christ, the one who has saved you. And so the Trinitarian love for you as a Christian means that you grow in your love for Christ. That is a beautiful work of God in us. What does it look like for us to grow spiritually truly, to grow in the love of God? And the growth and the love of God is his work in you. To see how that happens uh, very specifically, let's say that you have committed some sin and you have not repented about it to God or someone else this morning. Well, you have a few options. You can hide and pretend it didn't happen. You could try and work it off. You could try and find different views that say that your sin is not that bad. Um, You could just kind of stick your spiritual fingers in your ears and hum a song and hope that it goes away. If we're focusing on the crucified Christ, those are not options. 
If the crucified Christ is your Savior, then he has already outed you and your sin. He has already said that sin was so bad that it required me to die on your behalf. And because I have paid on your behalf, you can both admit it in how bad it is and claim that God has forgiven you through the finished work of Jesus who has died for that sin and all of your sins on the cross. But unless you process your sin at the cross, you have all of these other off-ramps. Pretend it doesn't happen, hide, fingers in the ears, find different views that don't say it's that bad. But we're in the cross of Christ. We can say, no, that my sin is bad. My sin is destructive. My sin is an offense to an eternal God. And in his mercy, he has not only valued my sin rightly, but paid for it. And that my God is more gracious than my capacity to sin. And so I can both confess my sin and the greatness of God's grace to heal. And so you can actually both grieve over your sin at the cross. And you can celebrate the mercy and grace of God. You can amplify grief and sorrow and honest confession and amplify celebration and grace and joy in the Lord God, which frees you to live before others. Let's say that that sin wasn't just against God, but against someone else. What if having honestly admitted it before the Lord and the cross of Christ and received his loving grace and mercy towards you, you can go to someone else and say, I need to confess my sin to you. This is what I really did. I think this is how it really hurts you. And I want to give you the opportunity to speak into that. Because I don't even know. Can you help me understand how much my sin impacted you? And I want you to know that if after this conversation, you find out ways that it's impacted you more, come back and tell me more. Because... I know that God's forgiven my sin, and I want to hear that impact on you because I also want to revel in God's ability to forgive. And I want to confess I am so sorry. And my only hope is that God is going to have mercy on, mercy on me and grace towards me. And I want to do everything I can, if you're willing, to try and make up for the damage that I've caused you. Now, that kind of confession, there, there are a few of us, if we've been sinned against who would just say, like, uh, whatever. I think most of us sinned against would hear that kind of confession and say, brother, sister, I forgive you. And the reason we're able to do that is because God has had mercy on us as well. But all of those interactions take place at the cross and before the cross of Christ. If we have those interactions away from the cross without dealing with the cross, then all kinds of things people don't confess or if they really do confess, people are not able to give forgiveness and instead harbor bitterness. Or they're not able to dwell on the reality of it, that relationships can be damaged and take time to restore. All of those things are only possible at the cross of Jesus. So, the Apostle Paul is saying, if you refuse to have the Holy Spirit through Scripture to process your life at the cross, you're going to make a wreck of your life. You can just look in the world and see that. But if we do life before the cross of Jesus in a very real, gritty way, we are enabled and empowered to admit things as they really are and to admit the boundless grace of God as he really is and see real growth and change in grace. But all of that is possible only through the Holy Spirit of God and our trust and rest in him. 
And so this is, this is our homework this week. Um, if, if we're a congregation, maybe I'll put it in my email to y'all this week or something else. Um, I want us all to do two things. Let's pray together as a congregation that God would help us to see and savor Christ through the Holy Spirit in how we reflect on the Word of God this week. And that God, secondly, that God would show us the areas of our life where we can walk in more gospel obedience this week. So that, that's the painful prayer. It's kind of like praying for, praying for patience. Like it's, you know what's going to happen if you pray for patience? Somebody's going to annoy you. You asked for it, growing your patience, bringing annoyance. That's how it works. So if you pray, the Holy Spirit's going to show you areas of your life where you are not applying the crucified Christ. You prepare for the knife. There are going to be areas of pain, and you're going to see things about yourself. But if you process that before the cross, even the sorrow of seeing those things will be moments for you to celebrate the grace of God in your life. And so we're really asking for celebration and grace, but we have to start by saying, God, show me the areas of, of, of my life through your Holy Spirit where I am not applying the truth of the crucified Savior. Let's do those things this week and see if we can set up some Ebenezer stones over the course of the week, over the course of the months. This is God's great work in us through the Holy Spirit because it, like, that's what he's saying here. This is God's work in us through the Holy Spirit. We respond, we work, we do all that we can, but it is God's work who both sends the pass and receives the pass for us and applies to us the grace of God. So we find, would God find us to be obedient and faithful, resting and receiving the grace of the Lord Jesus through the Holy Spirit? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your word, which is true no matter what happens, but we have found to be true because of your Holy Spirit in us, which testifies to its inherent truthfulness. Would you, Father, grow us as individuals in the gospel of Christ, and also as we fit together as a congregation, just like the congregation in Corinth did, grow us in health as a congregation, as we seek to apply the crucified Savior to every area of our lives. We give you thanks and praise in his name. Amen. Always stand and respond in song.